This morning we continue our sermon series on the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian church. Last time we looked at verse 3 where Paul praised the Father for providing his church with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then we looked uh, at least briefly at an outline of the three parts, main parts of that blessing that are unfolded through verse 14. Chosen for adoption by the Father, redeemed for unity by the Son, sealed for an inheritance by the Spirit. Salvation involves all three members of the Trinity. We started looking at what chosen for adoption means, and this morning we'll pick up that theme, but first let me read again verses 3 through 14. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ." In him we were also chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we continue to marvel at Your Scripture, Your Word preserved for our benefit, our spiritual, emotional, intellectual, social benefit. Every part of life, Lord, is governed by, is sustained by, is informed by the wisdom and the beauty of your word. And so, again, we simply ask, Lord, that you would speak clearly through this word of the Apostle Paul by your Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll start by picking up where we last left off a couple of weeks ago, the Father's choice. The doctrine of election is not exactly subtle in this passage. It's in-your-face emphatic. Three times in 12 verses, starting in verse 4, He chose us. Then verse 5, He predestined us. And then, as John Sterling puts it, back to back, belly to belly, in verse 11, He says, in Him we were also chosen, having been predestined. If it wasn't enough on its own, He puts them all together, redundant, repetitive, emphatic, Last time I read a a few other key passages to show you that this isn't just Ephesians chapter 1, but it's all throughout the New Testament. It's Jesus saying, uh, teaching this reality in John chapter 6. It's Luke speaking to this reality in Acts chapter 13. And it's Paul elsewhere in, for example, Romans 8. 
supporting this doctrine. It's all over the place simply because it's a biblical doctrine. Despite the biblical evidence, though, a lot of Christians resist it, especially expressing a number of objections that I started raising a couple of weeks ago. I promised you we'd come back to them, and we're going to look at two of the biggest ones in, in, um, over the next few minutes. First, election seems to limit free will. That's a cultural value that is increasingly a must-have, non-negotiable, not only in the Western uh, areas of the world, but throughout. Independence and my right to choose. Talk about your religion, but don't mess with those personal rights, right? And so, election seems to fly in the face of an emphasis on free will. Who is God to strong-arm anyone into believing Doesn't this make a mockery of faith if we picture Christians walking around like robots that have been pre-programmed by this almighty God from before the creation of the world? Here's where we need to start. That Genesis chapter 1, all of humanity, men and women, have been created in the image of God and have been given free will. We're free moral agents. We're given the choice. Adam and Eve were first given the choice. Uh, Don't eat of that fruit or choose what you will. Disobey from the very beginning. And, and, And yet, because of sin's pervasive, universal, powerful influence on every single human being, no one would ever choose God. No one would ever move towards Him, let alone lay down their crown before His throne and yield in perfect submission. The sin of Adam and Eve wasn't about a piece of fruit. It was fundamentally about pride and unwillingness to submit to the wisdom and will of the one true king. And since then, every human being has consistently wanted self to be king, self to be on the throne of life. This is why Jesus says in John six forty four, one of the verses I read a couple of weeks ago, He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. It's not that people are pounding on the door and God won't answer. It's that no one even wants to come close to that door where there's an invitation to enter. In our sin, we reject. That uh, that verse is not some sort of heavenly tractor beam that drags sinners kicking and screaming into heaven you know, against their will. You will believe. But yes, one of the doctrines of grace that we celebrate coming out of the Reformation is irresistible grace. Why is, irres- why is grace irresistible? And how does it not negate the, the reality of free will? Well, the Bible refers to unbelief as spiritual blindness. And so, when God initiates salvation to enable your eyes to be opened through Holy Spirit power, we're going to come across a phrase later on in Ephesians chapter 1, then the saved sinner is now able to see for the very first time and to gaze upon absolute beauty and perfection and holiness and majesty and splendor. If you've never been able to see, but you see all of this perfection for the very first time, there's only one natural, instinctive reaction in the face of this perfection, and it's worship. 
And then it's naturally surrender and trust, a longing to be in the presence of this glorious Creator forever. It's not that you're forced to like something you don't like. It's that eyes are open that you might see something you've never even dreamed existed, but that you were created to most fully enjoy. Another objection is that election just doesn't seem fair. Why would God choose some and not others? And in fact, if He's choosing anyone, why doesn't He just choose everyone? The simple answer is this. Unfairness goes out the window if no one deserves salvation. Fairness is an issue of justice. That's where we need to start if we want to talk about fairness. Imagine three friends of yours are plotting a murder, and you catch wind of this, and you race over to their house, and you, you, you find them, and you plead with them, but they're resolute. And on the way out to the the car where they're going to head out to commit this murder, you tackle one of your friends, and you won't let go. You will not let him get into that car while the other two won't wait. It's, this is a time-sensitive operation. They speed off, they do their deed, they get caught. And when they're convicted, the question is, do they have any right to be mad at you for not having tackled all three of them? Do uh, do they have any right to be upset that you chose one and not the other two? Absolutely not. They have no basis for that kind of resentment. None of them deserve to be, quote-unquote, rescued from the consequences of their decisions. Fairness has nothing to do with the difference between the guy whom you tackled, who's still a free man because he didn't do anything wrong, and the two who did commit the crime and are rightly imprisoned facing trial. There's no unfairness here, but there is grace in that you happen to catch one of them and save him from a life uh, sentence in prison or from death row. Spiritually speaking, what's right, what's just, what's fair is that sinners who rebel against God get what they want and get what they deserve, independence from God and exile from His presence forever. No one is force-fed anything they don't want. No one can't access what they really want. That's justice. And if God rescues some by grace... He deserves all praise and glory and honor rather than bitterness from the rest of us who didn't deserve anything other than what we got. The doctrine of election or predestination, same thing, is actually one of the most comforting, assuring spiritual realities if you're willing to humble yourself in the face of lots of mystery. We cannot get our brains fully around this reality. We can't understand the mystery of God's purposes at least fully enough to satisfy human logic, but the biblical truth we're wrestling with is a significant part of the doctrine of God's sovereignty, which means there is no limit to His rule, which means there's nothing that can hold back His all-powerful accomplishing of whatever He perfectly, wisely desires to accomplish. 
That's what we mean by His sovereignty. Without God's sovereignty, the devil just might win. You might just lose your salvation if you can't keep up this spiritual winning streak. You know, this stretch of days where you've, you've been a pretty good person. Without God's sovereignty, theoretically, Jesus' atoning death on the cross could have resulted in no one being saved. With God sitting up there realizing He swung and missed, or continuing to cross His fingers, hoping that someone, anyone will believe and then prove themselves good enough to deserve the benefits of this sacrifice that we can't even understand the cost of as we sung. But with this biblical reality of election, with this all throughout Scripture affirmation of the sovereignty of God, some sinners are absolutely saved. Evangelism will be effective even if you say the wrong thing. And the victory of good over evil is guaranteed. Secondly, sovereignty and responsibility. This is actually another objection that I wanted to just address separately. It's really a question of why bother if God is ordaining all things? Why bother? Some people say, for example, if God chooses, why would we bother evangelizing? Why do we need to open our mouths if it's just going to happen anyway, if it's all pre-programmed? Here's a lesson from Acts chapter 27. It's not necessarily on evangelism, but on the principle behind this complaint, Um, wondering whether God's promise still requires human obedience is really the question. In Acts 27, Paul's a prisoner on a ship sailing for Rome. He's uh, supposed to stand trial before Caesar, and in the middle of a raging storm, an angel says this to him, "'Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you.'" It isn't just a guarantee for Paul you're going to survive because you're going to go to trial, but it's everyone on that ship with you is going to sort of get this overflow of grace because they're fellow shipmates with you. And yet, a few verses later, in the timeline of 27, chapter 27, a few days later, and yet, some sailors are trying to escape in a lifeboat, and Paul says to the soldiers in charge, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. That should cause our foreheads to wrinkle and say, wait a second, wait a second, did God really speak through this angel? And if He did, did He really mean all of those sailing with you will be saved, guarantee, period, because He's the sovereign creator of the universe? And if He did say that, how in the world can Paul say, unless these men stay with a ship, you cannot be saved? As if to say, God's sovereignty could easily be messed up with the simple choices of anyone on that ship. As if to say, God is that hopeful deity in heaven, making promises He can't keep, uh, just hopeful that everything, everyone cooperates so that He looks sovereign. Everyone does the right thing to not mess up His perfect will. What's more important, we might add, removed from the situation? that we believe God's promise, 
or that we act out human responsibility in obedience, in wisdom. That's the wrong question. Neither is more important than the other. Both work together. One never cancels out the other. They exist at the same time with no real paradox, and we see this throughout Scripture. When the great British, uh, great British preacher Charles Spurgeon was asked, how do you reconcile sovereignty and human responsibility? He answered, I never reconcile two friends. There's no need to. There's no necessity to wrestle with how could this be versus that. They both coexist, and we cannot explain this fully. But all we can say is throughout the Bible, there they are side by side. God's sovereignty, His all-powerful promise, His guarantee, His plan that will come to fruition, and alongside that, all throughout the Bible, our human responsibility to trust to pray, to give, to go, to serve. Lastly, we see a theme running throughout this whole passage, the praise of His glory. We've already seen election explicitly mentioned in verse 4, verse 5, and then doubly in verse 11. But really, every part of this epic single sentence strengthens this teaching. Remember a couple of weeks ago I said that um, in the original Greek in which the New Testament was written, verses 3 through 14 are one epic run-on sentence, 202 words flowing out of Paul's pen. No English teacher would ever let you get away with that these days. But he is just so overwhelmed with gospel riches that he can't help but pile phrase upon phrase. And the whole passage, this one single sentence, highlights the priority of praise. Verse 3 starts with praise. Verse 14 ends with praise. If you get a theological headache from wrestling with these doctrines, and if you have a hard time swallowing it, don't miss the fact that at the same time as he's writing about these incredible mysteries. Paul is not struggling at all, but rather he's effusively praising the king with all of the descriptive, superlative words that his mind can think of. And what he highlights is the pleasure of God's will for the praise of His glory. Take a look at this list of verses. Verse 4, in accordance with His pleasure and will. Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 7, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Verse 9, um, the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure. Verse 11, the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Verse 12, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. And then one more time, for good measure, verse 14, to the praise of His glory. Worth reading through and savoring the repetition and the emphasis and the redundancy. He can't help but pile these phrases on top of one of the other in order to stress that it is all about God's pleasure and will and not at all about people's choices let alone people's choices to rebel against Him and to deserve judgment. 
God's grace is the story. His sovereignty is the emphasis, which, is, which was one of the main themes of the Reformation that Steve has led us through in, uh, in the liturgy to remember from uh, 500 years ago this coming Tuesday. Why did God choose His people for adoption into His family through the work of Jesus the Son? The simple answer is because He wanted to, because he, it delighted Him to save, and ultimately because it brought Him and His glorious grace greater praise. That makes wrestling with this challenging doctrine even more difficult. Um, how would you react if one of your neighbors just couldn't stop bragging about his or her wealth? Or a, a fellow student just instinctively kept telling you how little they studied for their regular, typical A+, perfect grades, or, or whenever anyone won't stop talking about himself, how do you react? If I stood here and bragged about me, if my spiritual leadership was all about improving my image in your minds so that you would respond to me with greater adoration and exaltation and, and acclaim, you'd quickly find another church. And you might share some choice words on the way out. You might offer a friendly psychiatric referral because something's very wrong because my glory would be incredibly misplaced. I'd be putting myself in the place of God, which no one deserves. God alone is worthy of praise and adoration and delight. His glory alone is to be magnified. And all of that is so appropriate that we sing and pray and preach about these realities all Sunday morning, every Sunday, week after week. There is no higher excellence than God's. That all reflects comfortably our human perspective as worshipers, right? Um, that's why we'd affirm this, the first question and answer from the Westminster Shorter Catechism which asks, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what's the purpose of every, every human life? Why are we here? And the answer that it offers is very simply, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That all makes sense from our human perspective as worshipers. But what about God? Uh, what about His perspective? As we're doing all this, does He say, ah, oh, shucks, no, 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 really, people, you don't have to do that. I'm really not all that good. No, no, please. I, I'm, I'm really all that, not, not that perfect. You shouldn't use all these superlatives. You, you, you shouldn't talk about me being supreme. You know, it's, it makes me uncomfortable. Is God, from His perspective, is He sharing that kind of reaction? When we would have the opposite of disgust and disdain, if, if a fellow human being were to um, aim for and freely receive adoration and acclaim and worship? And the answer, of course, is never. That is not God's reaction. Listen to pastor and author John Piper, who rocked my world about 15 years ago when I first read his book, Desiring God. The climax of God's happiness is the delight He takes 
in the echoes of his excellence in the praises of his people. Theological headache right there, okay? What's he saying? The height of God's happiness is the delight he takes when we praise his excellencies. Does that bother you? In other words, turn the catechism answer back on itself and you get the chief end of God is to glorify God and to enjoy Himself forever. Does that bother you? It sounds even more stark. And you think, is God a narcissist? Is He really all about Himself, consumed with Himself? Is that not inherently, automatically, instinctively unbiblical? Is God watching and listening and receiving our praise thinking, yes, that's right, more please? I mean, isn't that our human um, attitude, right? We, we just disdain anyone who would ever feed this sort of, you know, you see, you see a professional athlete, no wonder, you know, filled with the biggest egos on this earth, you know, score a touchdown and just do this, you know, 60,000 people in the stadium, millions watching all around the world, and they're just soaking in, yes, I am marvelous. But if that's the picture of God, theological headache, what's going on here? All we can start with is this, not all, I don't mean to minimize this, the repeated, emphatic, broken record focus here in Ephesians chapter 1 on God's pleasure and will for the praise of His glory, not anyone else's, is the basis for this statement that might feel wrong, but is so right. Listen. If God were to delight in something else other than His own glory, that would mean something or someone else is greater, is higher, is more beautiful, has a higher degree of perfection, outholies God, outpowerfuls God, outwise wisdoms God. I'm, I'm, I'm stretching the bounds of English here. Paul did, 202 words. I can stretch a little bit myself. And if He recognize someone or something greater on, on, along any dimension, he would cease to be God. He would yield his position of primacy, of priority to another who would be the real God, higher along all of these fronts. So, this picture that Paul paints in Ephesians 1 is the only accurate view of the one and only God who does all things for His greatest happiness and delight and praise and glory, and there's nothing more right in the world. Listen to Piper again. God is the one being in all the universe for whom seeking His own praise is the ultimately loving act. For Him, self-exaltation is the highest virtue. When He does all things for the praise of His glory, He preserves for us and offers to us the only thing in all the world that can satisfy our longings. God is for 
us. And the foundation of this love is that God has been, is now, and always will be for Himself. This is ultimately why God delights in the salvation of sinners, because first and foremost, that salvation reflects His glory above all else. Self-serving of God? Not in the least. Because there's nothing higher than the pleasure of His will, which happens to be for the greatest joy of His children, whom He's chosen to be adopted into His family. You can demand answers that satisfy to resolve that theological headache. You can cross your arms if you want or, and refuse to believe the biblical teaching at face value or, this is my prayer, you can follow the Apostle Paul's lead and fall on your knees, on your face before the King, before His one and only throne and worship because as you trust in His Son, Jesus, the reality is, becomes, that the Father chose you for adoption into His family all according to the pleasure of His will for the praise of His glory. Let's pray. Lord, we can hardly begin to understand these things. They're too marvelous for words. That's why, Lord, the gospel has inspired so much beauty and art. Painters and poets and singers and instrumentalists striving to somehow capture a little extra glimpse of the majesty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we stand on their shoulders. We're thankful for the heroes of the Reformation heroes who laid down their own lives in defense of truth, men and women who stood upon Your Word and Your Word alone and resolved to lose their heads and give up all possessions so that this treasure, which has no equal, would be preserved, would be shared, would be delighted in for generations to come. Lord, we praise You. We confess to you so often we strive for our own glory, but there is only one who deserves glory, and it's you, Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has worked this salvation plan wisely, sovereignly from before the creation of the world. We bow before you in humble adoration and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.